Hi, this is Pastor Brittany Isaac from Urban Village Church, Chicago. We are a church that is bold, inclusive, and relevant. I know that many of you out there are hungry for a gospel message of healing and wholeness, a message that leads to a life transformed by Christ. I hope that this podcast does just that. And if it does, would you please consider making a financial gift that will support this gospel-inclusive ministry? You can do that by going to urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks so much and have a blessed day. This morning's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 3. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seeds in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I, give, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was an evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitudes. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. The word of God for the people of God. So I am, uh, I'm not, oh, this is great. That's the behind the scenes magic you're getting this morning. I'm, uh, I'm not Brittany Isaac, as you may have guessed. Uh, Brittany's right over there, she's okay. My name is Colin McDonald, and I am the Ministry Exploration Intern here at UBC Andersonville. And I have been looking forward all week uh, to preaching in this as part of this exciting current sermon series, Unplug. Uh, so let's, let's begin with a word of prayer. God, in this complex week, full of tragedy and sorrow. Be with us this morning as we encounter delight, as we work to reconcile joy and suffering. Enable us to know that we are called as your people to be witnesses to both joy and suffering. Amen. When I think of it, 
Several quotes come to mind from the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, many of which I uh, will not share this morning at church. But they're good ones, aren't they? But the one that has stayed with me since I first watched Matthew Broderick make a Sabbath day of rest look like a rite of passage, if not a personal debt owed, typifies his character's outlook on life. Life, says Ferris, stopping time, breaking the fourth wall to speak directly to his audience, moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. It's a clever, if not altogether humorous aside, this sense of life is something one might venture to miss out on. From Socrates to Jean-Paul Sartre to poet James Wright's famous line at the end of an otherwise bucolic poem on lying around in Pine Island, Minnesota, read, I have wasted my life. We entertain a notion that experience, while superfluous, is something we have yet to experience. Perhaps because, as Ferris says, life moves pretty fast. And that was back in 1986. Three decades later, life appears to be moving so fast that an app on my phone for the weather invited me yesterday to see three times further into the future. I didn't click the button of weather, presumably, uh, it was inviting me to do that with, whatever that might mean. What's more, we can feel it, or at least we think we can. Since the early 19th century, when the steam-driven piston made motion an inexhaustible, reproducible byproduct, not of the body, or water, or wind, but a smarter machine, our efficacy has continued to lessen while our ability to see and do miraculously has swelled. In his book, 24-7, Late Capitalism and the Ends of Sleep, Jonathan Crary writes that our abdication of responsibility for living is indicated by the titles of the many best-selling guides that tell us with a grim fatality, the 1,000 movies to see before we die, the 100 tourist destinations to visit before we die, the 500 books to read before we die. It's enough to inspire a series of alternative to-do lists, isn't it? The eight movies to watch over and over again, the 40 places to avoid, the 10,000 books to claim to have read and bring up at your next social gathering. <laughs> In our scripture this morning, we hear that God created humankind and every plant and tree and seed, all things intended to grow. And then God saw everything that God had made and indeed it was very good. I pause myself at the word saw. God saw everything, and it was good. God takes delight, 
but not before God sees what she has shaped. God doesn't see what someone else has recently made and agree that they've done a pretty good job. God sees what God has done, and then God rests. We tend, or at least I tend, to think of taking delight as a euphemism of sorts for taking vacation. Vacation itself a euphemism for just giving up for a short while. <laughs> Have you noticed this, this reluctance and anxiety that simple joy produces in our minds and in the minds and interactions with others? People, myself included, who treat even the possibility of joy like an unsettled-on insurance policy, making certain all the variables are accounted for prior to giving in. Let's have a show of hands if you look at uh, you know, informal dinner parties as a sort of sociological case study. Just me, or we have a few other people? Just one or two? Great. Okay. I'm heartened to share this. I, I like to look at dinner parties at other people's homes, of course, as a barometer <laughs> of said person's capacity, not for seating and small talk, but happiness, for pleasure in the midst of complication. It isn't fair. For all I know, they didn't want to have people over in the first place. I know I haven't. And regardless, it's a lot of work to play host but I do anyway. I'll never forget the first Thanksgiving I spent away from home at my college girlfriend's family's home in Lincoln, Nebraska. A beautiful home. A bountiful meal. And the voice of my then-girlfriend's mother admonishing from the kitchen, now is the time to be noticing and doing. I wasn't sure which came first. I looked around for other guests. I looked at the spotless set dining room table. Who else, I wondered, had been invited? It half occurred to me to make sure everyone knew I was already there. And yet, to take delight, as evidenced by God's truly miraculous creation, is ironically to take responsibility, to take accountability. To take delight is to step back, stop time, break the fourth wall of our rush onward, and reflect on what is there to see. By this account, delight is transformed from a noun to a verb from an indolent routine into a matter of real life and death. At the same time that our doing is transfigured from an impulsive must to a holy and known want. We know God in our doing, just as God came to know us. Everything that has the breath of life and it was so. The visual artist Anne Hamilton uses words like occupy and cultivate 
to talk about her creative process, of coming to know that a work of art is so. In a 2014 interview on Krista Tippett's program and podcast on being, Hamilton asks, how do we know things? When you're making something, she says, you don't know what it is for a very long time, so you have to cultivate the space around you where you can trust the thing that you can't name. And if you feel insecure or someone questions you and you need to know what it is, then what happens is you give that thing that you're trying to listen to away. And so how do you know? How do you cultivate a space that allows you to dwell in that not knowing? So much of our lives are spent, and I, I choose that word carefully, spent herring from one thing to the next, be it an email, an errand, or tedious pastime, because we haven't worked to cultivate a now in which to ask ourselves if it is good. The present tense, our last defense, as Gwendolyn Brooks says. The present tense, unlike our past and future selves, is not a projection. It is what it is and often can't be named. To pay attention, as the composer Philip Glass has said, to dwell in that not knowing is itself a kind of achievement. It is an achievement, for instance, to outrage over the most recent public episodes of police misconduct in Tulsa and Charlotte, which seem to enforce the idea that the law is as much here to serve and protect as it is to discriminate and devalue citizens of color, citizens who in Mecklenburg County, of which Charlotte is the seat, stand at an 86% gap in median household income compared to their white neighbors. And yet we know that our outrage and anger and fear don't come out of nowhere. As Christians, we aren't looking for a fight for a fight's sake. That in fact, the substance of our outrage is that intersection where excitement and expectation and delight meet with avoidance. It is what the German Christian philosopher Immanuel Kant might have called an a priori understanding, a cognition based not only on empirical evidence of which there is plenty, but the form of all possible experience. To delight is not to turn away from the problems of the world, but to example for the world what we have chosen. It is not so simple or forgettable a choice as that between movies on Netflix. It is not privileged to choose between classes and categories. Rather, it is a choice born of our own essential poverty that only God can grace. 
Have you noticed that when you're in a state of delight, you don't really care what's right or wrong? I'm not talking about running a red light or drinking more than you know you probably should or jovially putting down a friend for want of something unflashy and simply kind to say, but rather those moments in a public space when you're with a friend laughing and your laughter overwhelms the room you're in. Or at Christmas, if I may speak from experience, when the delight you take in giving your outgifted five-year-old nephew a ride in the rocket ship he's fashioned himself from the box holding whatever he's already forgotten, exhausts whatever sound instruction is coming from his parents to sit down and eat. When we take delight, we stand apart from what the world has put upon us as a gift and recognize it for what it really is, a magic trick. An illusion based on the premise that we don't have peace of mind. That's what we're, what we're constantly being sold, isn't it? Peace of mind. Whether it comes from going somewhere, or being alone somewhere, or reaching out to someone, connecting with someone. Some meaningful lack. Well, obviously, that world isn't paying attention to us. For all their algorithms and infringements on our privacy, Apple, Facebook, Google, you name it, don't know the slightest thing about who we already are. It sounds presumptuous. It's insulting, even, until we pause to think about the way we tend to talk to ourselves. In his essay titled Against Self-Criticism, the British psychoanalyst Adam Phillips reminds us that if we were to converse face-to-face, if we were to meet out in public with the most particular and diagnostic parts of ourselves, we would consider that person mentally unwell. Our insufficiency is patent, writes Phillips though we do need to bear in mind that to feel not good enough is to have already consented to the standard we are judged by. And I would hasten somewhat needlessly to add good enough, rich enough, busy enough, angry enough, happy enough, insert here, enough. to have already consented to the standard we are being judged by. God's good has no such standard. Prayer is something that changes throughout our lives, I'm convinced. My experience was that as a child, I looked at prayer as a tool for for asking for things, a kind of 
precursor to an expectation of more. But prayer is not an ask for more. It is a gift. Prayer is a recognition of what has been provided. I remember in college a teacher of mine once said that the world isn't watching you. We were scrambling to to learn how to write grant proposals for creative writing projects, serious business, obviously. Obsessed with our futures, obsessed with ourselves, obsessed with our yet-to-be-made mistakes. The world isn't watching you, she said. And she was absolutely right. The world isn't watching you. God is watching you. God sees everything. And like any giver, God is watching our eyes, hoping to see on our faces the joy of having received. I don't know that in high school I needed the reminder, but in high school I had over my bed hanging the poster from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Matthew Broderick lying recumbent with his hands behind his head, feet up with that cool leopard print leather jacket. You know the one I'm talking about? And the words emboldened above, Leisure rules. I don't know. I think in the 17, 18 years old, I kind of had the hang of leisure. But if I still had that poster, I think I'd hang it up now. I need that reminder more than ever. I need that permission more than ever. Leisure rules. Leisure, not a thing, not a noun, but an action. If you don't act on it, who will? To quote Anne Hamilton once more, when you're making something, you don't know what it is for a very long time. So you have to cultivate the space around you where you can trust the thing that you can't name. It is made. It is seen. It is said. It is good. Amen.